0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. We're going to begin in just a moment with a very familiar verse. Uh, thank you again so much for being out here. You know, Friday night, is one thing, Saturday morning too. Um, but uh, I hope it's going to be a, a blessing for you. It's, it's going to be a blessing for me. Uh, Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus says... I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Have you ever noticed that sometimes in conversations with others about Christianity that that you'll run across folks who try to minimize the idea of church? And I'm not just referring to people that are skeptics. Of course, it would happen with people such as this, but but I'm talking about believers. I mean, people who would acknowledge Jesus and profess a love and a faith in Jesus Christ. There's a lot of cliches that get thrown around. Um, Maybe you've heard of some of these, uh, give me Christ, not the church. Does that sound familiar? doesn't come from the Bible, but people say things like that. Um, Christians go to heaven, not churches. Is another one of those phrases. I saw a billboard one time in Atlanta uh, that was advertising a church, um, and I think it said, for people who are tired of church. Um, which was kind of interesting to me. But I suspect what was happening was that they were trying to lure people who didn't really see a, a need much for the traditional view of church. Um, I've run across others who say they don't believe in organized religion, and so they don't attend any work claiming that their relationship with Christ is personal, and that's where it ends. And, and then there was another person that I tried to encourage to um, attend a faithful church, uh, and they told me, well, I go to the church in my heart, and I don't even know what that means. Uh, but, but it does beg the question, um, what's going on with people who profess a faith and a love in Jesus Christ and yet they have little use or little time for his church? Um, there's probably a lot of things going on. That, that would be a great lesson for another day. And the goal of this lesson is not to perform an autopsy on um, the people who might um, say some of these things and undervalue the concept of church. I, I simply want to show you this morning that God's word presents a much different view of the church than some of these uh, cliches that we have been looking at. And we can see that from the very first verse that we just read in Matthew sixteen eighteen. right? Jesus built the church. And not only that, but if you look in Acts chapter 20 and in verse 28, we read that it came at a very steep price. In Acts 20 and verse 28, the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesian elders to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And now notice this, to shepherd the church of God, which he, Jesus, purchased with his own blood. And so not only did Jesus build the church, but the church's building material cost Jesus his own blood. I mean, the very reality of the church of Jesus Christ on this planet is a consequence of our Lord's suffering death. And in view of that, I I would say we make a grave mistake. Anytime we scorn or attempt to minimize the church as something that's not only optional, but as some people would say even unnecessary. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to show you just how significant... The church is in the life of the Christian by examining the various natures of the church. And I hope that that idea of the nature of the church will uh, become sort of self-explanatory as we sort of progress through the lesson. This is not going to surprise many of us here. but, But the meaning of the word church is, as it is used in Scripture, it does not mean a building. Now, if you go to Webster's English Dictionary and you look up the definition of the word church, that's going to be the first thing Webster's Dictionary is going to say, something like a a meeting place where Christians gather together. That's not how the New Testament uses the word. Uh, The word church comes from a Greek word that is called ekklesia. And ecclesia is actually a compound word. It's made up of two words. The word ek, which means out of, and the word uh, klesia, which is a derivative of the word kaleo, it means called, called out of. So the church in its literal Greek definition, as it is used in the original writings, means it refers to a people who have been called out of something. That's how the Bible describes God's church, a group of people who have been called out of something. Now, called out of what? Well, in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, Peter says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That sounds like Christians, doesn't it? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, and here it is, Who has called you out of ecclesia, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there it is. The same words are used as we uh, see in every other place that the word church is used ecclesia, called out of. The church is simply people who have been called out of the darkness of sin, or Satan's domain, and into the domain of Jesus, which in this verse is referred to as his light. And as Peter alludes to, this begins a a process by which we develop a certain character, a people who are just so thankful and so joyful that we cannot help but proclaim the excellencies of him to anybody that would listen. Now, what is it that called us? In 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, we read that it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was God who called us. That was the person and the medium by which God called us is what we call the gospel. The old way that we put this is is the glad tidings, the good news concerning the facts about the Son of God, the fact that he died, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, the fact that he has given us commands by which we can be saved. So we're called by this gospel, this good news, out of a life of sin and into a relationship with Jesus Christ and then which we become the called out people of God. The gospel is what saves us. In Romans 1 and verse 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so when we are talking about the church, we are talking exclusively about saved people, Christians. We're talking about the same thing that Peter talked about when he said that we were called out of darkness. The church is composed of the saved, and the saved, by virtue of their salvation, always make up what we call the church. And so, in just thinking about this initially, because we're going to look at some other descriptions of this idea of the church, but in just thinking about this initially, how well does that fit in with the phrase, give me Christ, but not the church. I mean, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in light of the verses that we've looked at, does it? No, we can't be in Christ without being in the church. Okay, but there are other ways in which the New Testament uses this concept of uh, the same group of people uh, in other terminology besides uh, the church. It helps us to understand uh, the nature of God's church. In Colossians 1 In verse 13, and as we read this, notice how similar this is to what we read in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. We're told that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. All right, so notice that term darkness right there. We saw that same word in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, right? It's the same word in the Greek. Uh, It's alluding to sin or error, misery, spiritual death. And that term transferred there is the idea of removing a people from one country to another. It's, It's the same thing that Peter alluded to in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. Paul is telling these Christians that they have been delivered from the domain of the devil, and they've been transferred to Jesus' domain. And so we're seeing this same idea that we saw in 1 Peter 2:9 of a group of people who have been transferred <laughs> from one position to another position. But instead of using the word church, he uses, this, he uses this word kingdom. And the reason is that kingdom, that's just another way to describe the church. And I think that we can show this by connecting a few other verses together. At least this is what has helped me in the past. If you look at Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Jesus says something really interesting to his apostles in Mark 9 and verse 1. In Mark 9 verse 1, Jesus says to his apostles, Truly I say to you that there are some of you, Who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. Alright, so there's apparently going to be people who are there with Jesus. They are going to see the kingdom because they're not going to die before they do it. They're going to see the kingdom come with power. Now turn to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1 and look in verse 8, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, because this is Jesus' final words to his apostles before he ascends to heaven. And what he tells them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, flip the chapter over to Acts chapter 2. This is uh, These first four verses in Acts chapter 2 is when the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles and they're given the uh, power to speak in tongues and other spiritual gifts. We read in verse 4 of Acts chapter 2 that they, the apostles, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Okay, so follow with me the logic here. The kingdom was going to come before some of those who were with Jesus in Mark 9, verse 1 died. The kingdom was going to come. And it's not that it was just going to abstractly come. It was going to come with power. We know the apostles received power when they were given the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's what Jesus said. And when did they receive the Holy Spirit? What day was that? That was the day of Pentecost, right? What other great things started on the day of Pentecost in which 3,000 souls that we read in Acts 2, verse 41 were baptized? The church, right? So the kingdom is the same thing as the church, not something that's going to come in the future. The kingdom came 2,000 years ago, and everybody that is in the church of Jesus Christ is in that same kingdom of God that has been called out of the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In fact, the Apostle John viewed the kingdom in the same way. Because if you look in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, he says this. He said, I, John, your brother, and notice this, and fellow partaker in the (coughs) tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. John spoke of the kingdom as not something that was going to come in the future, but he spoke of it in terms of something that was already there. Okay, so if the word church teaches us uh, that we are called out, and that's the nature of the church by which we learn from that word church, what can we learn about the church's nature through the term kingdom?
1: Well, think about
0: what two words make up this word kingdom. The, The two words in which we get the word kingdom is the word king and the word domain. Now, we know that Jesus is our king, right? Because notice again in Colossians 1.13, what we've been transferred into. To the kingdom of his beloved son, God's beloved son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king over the kingdom. This is something that he acknowledged before Pilate in John chapter 18 and in verse 37. When Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I've been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Okay, so Jesus is king. And when you think about a kingdom, every kingdom doesn't just have a king, but it also has subjects. Who are the subjects? John 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Okay, so every person has, or every kingdom has subjects, right? Who are the subjects? Those who are born again, born of water and the Spirit. Also, every kingdom has a law. What is the law of the kingdom? Well, after the church, same thing as the kingdom, came into play there in Acts chapter 2, and verse 42 of Acts 2, it says that these people that were in the church were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Alright, so that's the law, the apostles' doctrine. And then also every kingdom has boundaries, right? What are the boundaries of the church, the boundaries of the kingdom? Well, in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus says, Nor will they say, look here, there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is, Is in your midst. Now that's probably the most complicated of all these verses that we're looking at. And listen, there's a lot of implications of what Jesus says there in Luke 17, 21. But the most important implication that I would have you to know from this is that the church is not a place that we go, the church is who we are. The boundaries of God's kingdom expand as broadly as it needs to to contain every single subject who commits their life to King Jesus. And so you see how this term kingdom, it gives us a little bit clearer uh, a picture of what the church that Jesus built is supposed to be that that we don't necessarily get from that word ekklesia. It's a domain of Jesus' subjects over whom he rules through a series of laws, what is called the Apostles' Doctrine, and that kingdom will expand as far and as wide as it needs to, to encapsulate all who would come into the church wherever they may be. That's what I think would be some of the main ideas that we would get from the kingdom. Now, there's another aspect to the nature of the church as well. If you look in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 19. Ephesians 2 verse 19. Let's read down through verse 22. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, notice this, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Here we learn that the church can also be referred to as God's temple. Now, not like the tabernacle of Moses' day or the temple of Solomon's days, those were merely shadows and models of heavenly realities, as the letter to the Hebrews teaches. This is God's temple as God always intended it to be. One in which God would construct from all those who obey the gospel and would come together in fellowship because the substance of everything God intended the temple to be was not of precious metals, but made from precious people. And so it is a building in a sense, but the building is made up of people. And like all buildings, the temple of God, the church has a cornerstone. Who is the cornerstone in this wonderful temple that we call the church? Well, again, back in Ephesians 2, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone in whatever building that you're building, the cornerstone is that first piece laid. It is the piece that determines which direction all the other blocks go, right? And as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, Christ Jesus... Is the cornerstone of this temple that we are all made up of, and which the New Testament also teaches that some are going to stumble others and others are going to be uh, built upon. But He determines the direction that we go. And then the first set of blocks, what's the first set of blocks that you add? Once you got that cornerstone in place and you got your x axis and your y axis and your z axis, what are the other stones, the first stones that get attached to the cornerstone? It's the foundation, right? What's the foundation of God's temple? We are God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles. The apostles and prophets. That's the foundation of God's true temple. Those through, through who through inspiration of the Holy Spirit brought God's final message to the world. What we just read in Acts 2.42 is what is called the apostles' doctrine. And anyone who hears the word And responds to it in obedience. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are built upon that foundation. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 5. He says, you also, that's us, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And, and so think about this. I mean, we don't usually refer to the church as a temple, do we? I mean, we always use that word church, but that's exactly what we are. And it's a very illustrious and pleasant thing to think about. Because by describing the church as a temple, God isn't just giving us an architectural plan. The fact that we are a temple means that God is very jealous for our well-being By virtue of the fact that we are his dwelling place. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just as Solomon's temple in the Old Testament meant that God dwelt with Israel and he was jealous for Israel, that's how it is with us, but even more so. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Do you see how mindful and protective God is towards His temple, His church? I mean, you you mess with God's church, God's going to mess with you. The Old Testament temple may have been made out of the most precious metals known to man, like gold and silver and whatnot, but the most precious objects that make up God's true temple are people who have given their lives for Jesus Christ. And just as the temple of the Old Testament was, was uh, made up of those precious metals like gold and silver, God expects us also to ma- maintain our purity as his temple. I don't have this um, verse on the overhead, but if you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I want to read what the apostle said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 about the importance of us maintaining our holiness and our purity before him as his precious temple. In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16, The Apostle Paul says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, God's temple was never to be ordinary. God's temple, God's church is extraordinary. It is special, it is peculiar, it is beautiful and holy for Him. That is what we are to be. We must maintain our purity as God's special people. Now, there's another um, illustrative term uh, for the church that's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, that He put all things in subjection under His feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, and notice this, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This verse in Ephesians 1:22 is describing a very intimate relationship that we enjoy with our Lord. And that is that we are his body. And us being his body, he is our body. He is the head of the body from whom we receive instruction. Colossians 2.19 puts it this way, that we are to hold fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. In other words, the Bible doesn't depict Jesus as ruling over us with some kind of iron fist dictatorship but depicts it as a relationship with him in which we enjoy and which he provides for our spiritual needs to the degree that we hold fast to him, to we, that which we hold fast to the head. But it's also a relationship that extends beyond our connection with him merely being our head. It also extends to us having obligations toward one another. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, So we, who are many... Are one body in Christ, and now notice this, and individually members of one another. In other words, it's it's not just Christ helping us. Obviously, that's the main emphasis, right? But we also help one another as we develop spiritual relationships with one another in the church because we're all members of the same body under the same head, and we all have that same goal of heaven in mind. And so as the church, we are to provide for one another in this body. Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12 puts it this way. That in the church, he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. What for? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And, and so I ask again, how do you reconcile something like this with the opinion of, I don't believe in organized religion. I mean, there's nothing more organized than a body of God's people holding fast to Christ and supplying and providing one another so that we can build up one another and, and all reach that same goal of heaven that we aspire to. I mean, this is what makes us stronger Christians. This is what equips us to resist all those temptations out there in the world that we just can't simply handle on our own. I mean, folks, we, we need each other, right? We need to help one another. We need to fight for one another. That's the beauty of being in the body of Christ. For how long do we do this? Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. How long do you think that is, Mark? probably not, it's forever, right? I mean, it's going to take a long time until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. I'm not going to get there tomorrow. I don't know about you. To a mature man, I'm definitely not there. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, I will never be there, right? You see the importance of the body? As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Amen. Most of us have probably heard that expression, he's running around like a chicken with his head cut off. And for some that might conjure smiles and other sadness, but, you know, trying to separate the church from Jesus Christ is like trying to decapitate the head, isn't it? And a body cannot survive without its head. The fact that the church is the body of Christ means that we have a relationship with Jesus and we have a relationship with one another by which we mutually edify one another, we bear one another's burdens, and we build up one another so that we can be the best possible Christians that he would have us to be, right? It's so beautiful. Such an illustrious term. Here's another one that's really good. In John chapter 15 and verse 5, Jesus says this. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. From apart from me one can do nothing. Nothing. This description of us being a vineyard of the Lord, this takes it even further than what we can learn by just talking about the church in terms of a body. Because it's true that as Christ's church, we are growing together. And and the idea of the body sort of uh, makes that point. But by calling us the vineyard of the Lord, that shows that we are growing together in order to fulfill a purpose. And that purpose is that we would bear fruit. That's why we would plant a vineyard, right? Because we expect fruit. Why did God plant his church here on this earth? Because he expects to see the same same from us. He expects us to bear fruit. He expects us to be useful in his kingdom. Uh, Jesus put it this way. If you look at the four verses prior to John 15, if you look at John 15 verses 1 through 4, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And then he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And so as the vineyard of Christ, we are connected to Christ in that we develop the ability to bear fruit through Him, the vine. As the branches, we are required to grow and bear fruit. And as we do, Christ is going to prune us so that we can be more fruitful and bear more fruit. And what if we cease bearing fruit? Well, in verse 2, He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You know, the church is not a place for those with a gimme, gimme, gimme mentality. It's where we come to give. It's where we come to give to others and to encourage others and to be a blessing to others. In John 15 and verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. And in Proverbs 11 and verse 30, he says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. We saw that same same idea in 1 Peter chapter 2. That those called out are to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. This is part of how we bear fruit. This is what God saved us for. To help other people come to Jesus. You know, I've said this uh, before. I think I've said it here in a previous sermon I preached. God didn't send Jesus just to die so we would just be forgiven of our sins. That was only the beginning of the process. Jesus died so that ultimately we could be changed. And as we change and we become more Christ-like, we can't help but to shine our lights brighter and brighter in this world (coughs) and to be a positive influence in leading others to Christ. And so as God's vineyard, our responsibility is to grow and to grow and to grow some more, always taking our nourishment from Jesus, being the true vine, right, who supplies us with the strength we need to be everything that He created His church to be, Because if we are not growing, brethren, we're dying. And Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms that the longer we go on not bearing fruit, the more likely he will cut us off. And here's a really intimate description of the church. 1 Timothy 3 and in verse 15, the apostle Paul says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so the relationship we enjoy with one another in church, it's not simply a friendship, (laughs) is it? It's a household. It's a family. In this arrangement, God is not some taskmaster sitting in heaven just waiting for us to step out of line so that he can strike us down immediately. That is not the God that we serve. Not when we're in His church. Rather, He is our Father. And in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of the sons, crying in our hearts, Abba, Father. Jesus isn't just our King. He isn't just the head of the body. He isn't just the true vine. Jesus is our brother. In Hebrews 2 verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. Notice this. For which he. This is Jesus. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. And every member of Christ's church is a brother and sister in Christ. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 5, verse 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Isn't that beautiful? We're not just friends, folks. We're family. And how do you become family to Jesus? Jesus. Well notice in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 46, Jesus is going to tell us how it happens. It says that while he was still speaking to the crowds behold his mother and brothers were standing outside, this is his physical family seeking to speak to him someone said to him behold your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you but Jesus answered the the one who was telling him and said who is my mother and who are my brothers and stretching out his hand toward his disciples he said behold My mother and my brothers. And here it is. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. What an intimate thing to think on. That when my life becomes defined by doing the will of God, that Jesus doesn't just consider me to be a stone in his temple, or a member of his body, or a branch in his vineyard, but a member of his own family. And you know, there are some Christians in the world who, as a consequence of obeying the gospel, undergo terrible persecution by their own family members. And I I could tell you some heartbreaking stories I've known about this. People who lose everything for the gospel, everything that at one time mattered to them, making one wonder what temporal and eternal promises a person like that can cling to in those desperate hours. Well, Christ made a promise to people like this in Mark chapter 10 and verse 29. Where he says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. But that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. What a blessing to know that I can never give up something for Jesus, that he isn't. Able and willing to replace a hundredfold. Because we know what family does for one another, don't we? Family looks out for one another. We have all those cliches, blood is thicker than water. And no blood is more powerful or should be more powerful than the one that binds us Christians together. That being the blood of Jesus Christ. Very intimate, isn't it, to think about? You want to see something even more intimate? Now, men, brace yourselves, you're not going to like this one. But we are the bride of Christ. Yeah, we don't like that, do we? I'm no, I, I'm no bride, I'm a bridegroom. I mean, that's kind of how we men think. But, um, you know, the Bible does speak of the term uh, of the church using these terms. Um, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. The apostle says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. The implication is clear all throughout the New Testament that the church is the bride of Christ. And again, uh, to to you ladies, I'm sure this sounds very wonderful and warm and illustrious. Again, us guys can sometimes struggle with this description. I'm the bride, I'm a groom, and, and yet in the Bible... Christ is described as the bridegroom, and we, his church, as the bride. Uh, Notice this description in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be made holy and blameless. There's no sexual connotation here. It's a description of the intimacy that Christ enjoys with his church, the love he shares, the great sense of responsibility that he feels towards his bride, the church. Just as husbands are sensitive to the needs of their wife to the point that they would give their lives to provide for their wife. So was Christ done for the church. And our obligation as the bride of Christ is to spend our entire life on this earth getting ready to meet Him, as a bride would on her wedding day, will prepare herself to be as beautiful as she can possibly be for her husband. In Revelation chapter nineteen and verse seven, we're told, "Let us rejoice and be glad." And give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Every second on this earth, we use it to prepare to meet our bridegroom, Jesus And we take this preparation seriously, even over-preparing, as I'm sure most brides do, because we love him so much, and we're ready to give over our lives to him. And you know, um, every married man, I I have to believe, remembers when his bride uh, first walked down the aisle to meet him. Here's a picture of my bride. Isn't she pretty? That's Jennifer. Uh, We got married on the beach, and... um, I still remember, this was 17 and a half years ago, I still remember the moment that her car pulled up in the parking lot um, right outside the beach and, and she got out and I saw her in her wedding dress for the first time. Uh, it was just, it was, it was such a moment how she was just so decked out. I mean, pretty much the only thing ugly up this picture is me. I, people ask me all the time, how in the world did you land her? I uh, told Clay and Sandra the other night that everything sounds like marrying me through duct tape. Um, but you know, the, the truth is, I, I, I married up like uh, most of you men did. Um, Jennifer was beautiful to me the moment that she first got out of that car. But then every step she took towards me, as she became more and more into focus, she just got even more beautiful until she was finally there, standing right next to me, hand in hand, ready to spend a lifetime with me, of all people. And I'm telling you this because... That's exactly what it should be like, being the bride of Christ. It's as if our life here on this planet is just one long aisle that we are walking down with Jesus waiting for us on the other end. And someone once said, and I think this is probably true, I've never seen an ugly bride. I think that's right. And as we live this life here on this earth, as we grow... (coughs) and we bear fruit, and we learn purity and self-control, and we become more of what Jesus wants us to be, we're getting closer and closer and closer to meeting him at the other end of that aisle and to spend an eternity with him. And, you know, whether you men can buy into this illustration or not, it's biblical. But I'd say to all of us that with this illustrious term that we are the bridegroom of Christ, that is the hope of the gospel. So that phrase, give me Christ, not the church, what do you think about that now? That expression doesn't make a whole lot of sense in light of what we just saw that the church actually is, does it? And if you are here this morning and you are not part of this wonderful arrangement that God has prepared For his saved people. If you are here this morning. And you have not been called out of darkness. Into his marvelous light. To proclaim his excellencies. By obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are inviting you this morning. To strongly consider making that happen. We're going to stand. We're going to sing an invitation song. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And you're willing to repent of your sins. And confess publicly that he is indeed Lord. We can baptize you this morning in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Why don't you come? Why don't you do that right now? While we stand, while we stand. Um.